0: Hi, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Parsha Lab. Today, we're going to be looking at Parsha Bullock. Joining me today is going to be one of our fantastic writers who you've actually heard before on Parsha Lab, Beth Lashbeth. Welcome to Partial Lab again.
1: Thanks. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: Good. This is going to be the first one of these I've done with you. I am really looking forward to you out there in Aleph Beta land. I want to recommend to you that you can subscribe to this podcast. All you have to do is go to Stitcher or go to iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and just hit one little nifty subscribe button and you will be able to listen to us in the car while you jog or wherever it's just going to show up in your feed it's really great it's an easier way to do it than when you're on the web and one nice thing about podcasts is that you do not need your eyes you only need your ears so we're only borrowing half of you if you would like to be fully borrowed then let me recommend our videos which ask for your eyes and ears which you can find at alephbeta.org got a bunch of uh, wonderful parsha videos on balak and on other parshas so with no further ado Beth, I understand that you have some thoughts on Balak. I'm look forward to hearing them. So, Beth, surprise me. (laughs)
1: You got it, Rabbi Foreman. As you said, we're looking at Parsha's Balak, and my experience, whenever I open up the Parsha, I sometimes forget that there's a context here, right? I open up to Numbers chapter 22, Pasuk 1, Pasuk 2, and I start reading about uh, this imminent drama between Moab and between Israel, but there's, there's a context. So, Rabbi Foreman, can you remind us of the context? What else has been going on up until this point that makes Balak, the king of Moab, react the way that he does?
0: Right, so the context actually is given right there in the very first verse, very quickly. Balak, Balak, the son of Bird, sees uh, everything that Israel has done to the Amorites and becomes very afraid. So the context is really twofold, as I see it. One is, what is it that Israel did to the Amorite? That's given to us in the immediately preceding verses in the Torah. And basically, what that seems to be is the defeat of Og. Now, Og is portrayed in Midrashic literature as literally a superhero, like in the Fantastic Four, or basically the Hulk. But even without that Midrashic overlay, it seems that Og was a very strong king. And therefore, Israel's defeat of Og, you know, in the immediately preceding verses... Was a very significant development. There's two kings, there's Sichon and there's Og. And remember, these were wars that didn't have to happen, right? Because Israel asked for safe passage and nothing else. They really were not looking to start up with Sichon. Sichon thought that they would go out and would battle Israel anyway and would make a show of them, and they were routed. Uh, And Og was routed as well. And at this point, this is where I would say the the nations of the world, specifically the nations of Canaan or surrounding nations, begin to realize that something's going on with these Israelites and they can't really be stopped. And that leads to a great fear. So I would say that's the the number one thing uh, that's going on in terms of context. I think there's some other things too, but I would say, you know, that's the basic idea of context.
1: Great. And just to to pull back the the lens of the camera even a little bit farther, what's going on? Where are the Israelites in their journey and why is it that they're trying to start up with these nations? You know, like you said, it didn't have to happen. They're in the fortieth year. They're really close to crossing over into the land. They are. They're
0: actually they're in Arvot Moab, the plains of Moab, which by the way, you can see. If you go out near Jericho and you take that highway up, the, uh, up north, uh, going toward the Galil in Israel, you look out towards your right. You can actually see this place, though it's, it's just on the other side of the Jordan River. It's the plain coming down from the mountains of jo- what is now Jordan. It's just a, a hop, skip and a jump, as they say, from Israel.
1: And they've been close to Israel for a while because even a couple of chapters ago, they were in Kadesh Barnea. They were also right by the land trying to get in. And the quickest route as the crow flies to get into the land of Israel at that point means passing into other people's lands, mm-hmm. right? So that's the reason, as you say, that they're trying to, um, to ask for safe passage. First, they ask the Edomites. And then, like you say, they ask these two different, two different subnations of the Amorites. Mm-hmm. And um, when I looked back at the beginning of this story, when Israel first asked the Edomites for safe passage, all of a sudden I started asking a question that I had never, it had never occurred to me to ask before. The more I thought about this question, Rabbi Foreman, the more I was bothered by it. So I want to, I want to be bothered by it together with you. And the question concerns how these nations react. To the children of Israel. You said it, Rabbi Foreman. You said it's not really until the defeat of the Amorites that the nations start to see that there's something up with B'nai Israel. That's what you said, right? Mm -hmm. But shouldn't the nations have figured out that there was something up long before this? Shouldn't the nations, having seen God miraculously plague the Egyptians and liberate the Israelites from slavery, Shouldn't, at that point, the bells have started going off in their mind that this is not a nation to be messed with?
0: Yeah, you know, you would think. Um, it, it, it's a good question. Certainly, one can make the argument to buttress your claim that the miraculous splitting of the sea has got to take the cake in terms of miracles to this day. It becomes a signature of, of a Hollywood drama in Charlton Heston's, you know, famous Ten Commandments movie and... And everything since. And if uh, if it's lived on for 3000 years in our imagination, certainly you'd imagine if it's if it's just right then, then that would have been the event which would have scared everyone. So you're right. It's kind of mm-hmm. interesting that it's these defeat of the Amorite kings that causes everyone to really go kind of crazy. The, what I was going to say earlier in terms of the second piece of context, I mentioned there was two, though, touches on the issue that you raise now which is that if you look carefully at the language at the beginning of Parshat Balak, you actually will see this language that evokes, of all things, not the victories over the Amorites, but actually evokes the story of Egypt. Not Mm -hmm. really the plagues of Egypt, but other aspects of Egypt. For example, uh, that Moab was very afraid of of Israel. Vayagar is a particular word for afraid, right? And it's uh, a word that... Actually, was used in Egypt to describe the Egyptians' fear of Israel. Va'yoguru mipnei bnei they were afraid. Similar ki ravhu because they were great. It's interesting that the it's not just because they were militarily strong, but the verse is, is phrasing ki ravhu. There are great many of them, which again evokes Egypt that Israel is afraid because the people are great, and it's that same language that Pharaoh looks and sees the uh, yinei am bnei Yisrael They're very great. Right. Similar to right. In fact, you, you have Atsum.
1: If, if you look down at, at Pasuk Vav, you have Kiatsum Atzum Humimani. So yep. it's it, it's the exact echo.
0: Right. And you have Atsum as well. And you have Vayakats, which again, Vayakutsum Israel, that they, they were revolted or they, they drew back, they shrunk away from Israel. So all this language actually does evoke Egypt, but strangely, not the miracles of Egypt so much as Egypt's original fear of the population explosion of Israel. It seems to be getting echoed here.
1: You know, Rabbi Foreman, it's interesting that you point that out because I couldn't help but notice that there is some language here that does seem very resonant of the plagues specifically. And the language that I'm talking about is what Balak says in his message to Bilam. What is it that he's afraid that the people are going to do, right? So come with me to verse 5 where he says, Hine amyatsa chisa es ein ha'aretz. So there's this people that came up from Egypt, and I'm worried that they're going to cover the whole face of the earth. Mm -hmm. And, of course, what he's talking about there is it's not a military threat which concerns him. He's literally afraid that the people are going to come and eat up everything, eat up all the crops. They're going to decimate everything, and nothing will be left. Now that language of being chisa es ein haaretz, does that ring any bells right, so for you? Right, the arba,
0: which is plague number seven, which actually is devastating to the crops, as you say, et ein haaretz, if I'm not mistaken is a language, and it covers the Exactly, the exactly.
1: It's the same sort of fear that back in Egypt, the locusts mm-hmm. came up and they ate up all the crops and they left nothing behind for mm-hmm. the Egyptians to eat. And so to here, Balak seems to be afraid that the people of Israel are going to do that. Mm-hmm. And of course, what's the implication? What happens if the people Of Israel eat up all the crops like locusts, and there's nothing left behind.
0: Well, everybody else starves.
1: Everyone else, there's famine. He's worried about there being a famine for his people. So, famine is another one of those Egypt words.
0: Yeah, well, it's another thing that the Egyptians were afraid about. I mean, their great fear harks back to the famine that they survived, courtesy of Joseph. uh, And then uh, they're looking, seemingly, to insulate themselves against the possibility of another famine by creating storehouses. For grain and enslaving the Israelites to build those storehouses to ensure against future
1: famine. Mm-hmm, right. So I, I'm not sure what to do with this train of thought. I'm seeing the same kinds of resonances between Balak and Paro as you are. It makes me wonder if part of what the Torah is trying to tell us here is that... There was a lesson God was trying to teach with the Exodus, and somehow the lesson didn't get taught to people like Balak. People like Balak were supposed to see and hear it, and it didn't reach them, and the lesson needs to be taught all over again.
0: Right, so that's a very interesting possibility. I have wondered and pondered about that. I have a lot to say about it. Probably too much to say on a single podcast, but uh, (laughs) I can take a stab at it. Okay, so a while back we had uh, David Block in the office. He was a great writer, um, worked with us for a while, one of the stars of Parsha Experiment, and he shared with me an insight uh, which got me thinking about a pattern which seems related to the point, Beth, that you're making now. Let me see if I can reconstruct it from memory with some sketchy notes that I had back then that I just kind of pulled up in my computer. Basically, it seems like there is a fascinating sort of chiastic structure underlying the journeys of Israel and the desert over 40 years. It's a kind of epic, large-scale chiasm. And a chiasm, of course, is an inverted literary structure. It's an A, B, C, D, C, B, A structure, or an atbash structure, where the first elements of a pattern uh, lie in mirror image to the second half of a pattern. And basically, you can sketch out the whole 40 years of Israel and the desert that way. I seem to recall that there were hints of it In one of the most boring chapters of the entire Bible, which is at the very end of Parsha Bamidbar, which we're going to get to right after this Parsha, there's that long list of the encampments, if you remember, Mm -hmm. and you always think to yourself, why do I really need that? Let's take a look at Numbers 33, and I'll show you exactly what I'm talking about. You're going to see this long list of encampments, and I seem to recall that if you play one of our favorite games, which one of these things is not like the others? Um, you're going to find two encampments that strike you as different than the rest. For example, uh, verse 5. It's basics. And they, and, they there, and they were here and they went there. And they were here and they went there. And they were here and they went there. And occasionally you hear a little bit about the place, like an Elim, where there are these date palms and where there were these wells, but you still don't hear about anything that happened anywhere. The only times you hear about what happened, in other words, an event that happens, the first time you hear about that is seven masot in, mm-hmm. I believe, right? The seventh one, and you can check my math on this later, occurs in verse 15, uh, where, I'm sorry, occurs in verse 14 when they end up in Rafidim, no water. First time we heard about anything, nothing like that has ever happened. Now, Beth, if we just sort of scan, we keep on going. There's one other time and one other time only in these encampments where something happens. What's the other encampment? The rest you'll just see as you scan. It's all very, very dry. When's the next time something happens? I'll give you a hint. It's the seventh from the end of the Masot. The seventh from the beginning something happens, and the seventh from the end something happens. You can well, see, I see the So beginning. I see a
1: couple of things. Right. I see that when they get to the edge of the land of Edom... That is when we hear about Aaron's death. Correct.
0: And where does that take place? A place called hor Vayal Aaron Ha'konel mm-hmm. hor This is when they come to Kadesh and they encamp in hor And that's when Aaron dies. And connected to that happening, something else happens, which seems to be a domino effect of the death of Aaron, strangely enough, which is verse 40, the attack of the king of Melacharad. Arad. Vayishma mm-hmm. kanani Melech Melaharad attacks. And that seems to be, again, the beginning of this cascade. So what's going on here? So I remember way back when I had this theory that these two events are linchpins in a chiastic structure that spans the entire 40 years in the desert. And those events Mm -hmm. are back in the first year, it was the encampment at Rafidim when there was no water. And Mm -hmm. then in the 40th year, the death of Aaron followed by the attack of the Kanani Melacharad, And to begin to see the chiasm, one of the things you would look at is Rashi. Rashi talks about the attack of the Kanani, the king of Arad. And Rashi tells us something. And if you take a look at Rashi there, you'll see what I'm talking about. Do you Remember Rashi on the identity of that king?
1: Rabbi Forbin, let me just slow you down a little uh, sure. bit. So I, I hear you saying that seven verses in we get this event in Rafidim, the, the lack of water, and then seven verses out we get the death of Aaron. But I'm having trouble making the jump between the death of Aaron and the approach of the Canaanites. What kind of connection are you putting forth? Are you suggesting between those two Let's incidents? Let's take a look.
0: And so Rashi's bothered by your point, or actually the Gemara is bothered by your point. It's a Gemara in Rosh Hashanah. The Gemara says, Fayishma knani malacharad. And the Canaanite heard, right? And attacked. What mm-hmm. did they hear? Well, the previous verse was that Aaron died. And in fact, that's what the Gemara says. Right? What was it that they heard, the Gemara asked. Right? They heard that Aaron died. And so the Gemara draws this very clear line between there was something about the death of Aaron that precipitates the attack of the Canaanite. What uh-huh. is it about that attack? What is it about Aaron's death?
1: So is it? That somehow they interpret Aaron's death as being a message from God, that God's grace is no longer with the people in the same kind of way, and that therefore he might not protect them. So that them. in fact
0: is what the Gemara says, right? Mm-hmm. That the clouds of glory left in mourning, right? For Aaron, they left and therefore Israel's more vulnerable. But I'd also suggest something else because there's another Gemara, another Medrash that again, works on identifying who this mysterious king of Melaharad is. And later on, when we actually have the attack earlier in Bamidbar, um, Rashi goes out of its way for various reasons that I w- won't get into to suggest that in fact it was Amalek. Amalek is attacking. Hmm. And uh, Amalek actually used subterfuge to disguise themselves as Canaanites rather than the nomadic tribe of Amalek that they actually were. But if you think that it's a Mulek and now you put Aaron together with that, what does that remind you of back in the first year? A Malek and Aaron. Do a Mulek and Aaron have anything to do with each other?
1: Um, you know, you're gonna have to help me out here because I, I don't remember the So connection. when
0: a Mulek originally attacks Israel, way back in the mm-hmm. first year, Israel survives the attack only when Moses goes to the top of the mountain. If you remember in that story, Moses has to hold up his hands. Right, Aaron and Ahura okay, okay. are Tamechat right, Yadav, are holding his hands. So it's kind of interesting that the first time around that we ever encounter Amalek, we encounter Amalek mm-hmm. in concert with Aaron. And in fact, Aaron helps facilitate the defeat of Amalek. So it's almost no wonder that Amalek rears its ugly head. Once they begin to understand that Aaron's no longer around, like maybe. Uh,
1: In other words, now one of those guys, one of those key guys who used to hold Moses's hands up in order to defeat us, he's gone. No one's there to hold Moses's hand. His hand's going to drop and we're going to win. Now, now's the time to attack. Right
0: Now, let's actually, Mm -hmm. if we can, go back in numbers to that actual event, the original attack of the Kanani Malacharad. So let's go back to 21. Let's look at the actual attack. So the Canaanites come and they attack, and all of a sudden you have Israel. Israel makes a netter. Israel makes a promise to God and says, If you in fact place this nation in my hand, I will take no booty. I will take no spoils. I will in fact dedicate those to God and I will have nothing to do with them. And so God gave the Canaanites into the hands of Israel. Beth, how would you describe Israel's reaction to the second attack of Amalek versus Israel's reaction to the first attack? From your memory of what happened that first time around, uh, how is this different than the first time around?
1: What I'm hearing is that there's some there's a nervousness and a fear on the part of B'nai Israel. It seems that they're not sure that God is going to be with them this time, and that therefore they're making this kind of heavenly wager, as if to say, you know, God, I don't, I don't even know if you're there, but please do this thing for me. And if you do, I promise I'll do this for you. Right? Whereas you don't see any of that kind of language by the original attack of Amalek 40 years before. In
0: fact, Israel is completely silent the first time around. But the question is, what does that silence say? In a certain Mm. way, that silence almost says nothing. In other words, the only thing that delivers Israel the first time around is Moshe raising his hand or lowering his hands. Right. If you take Mm -hmm. that out, Israel fails. In other words, let's say there's no Moshe. Moshe gets shot by a sniper's bullet. Right. Lee Harvey Oswald. Mm -hmm. Right. So let's play what if. What happens in that war?
1: Oh, so that'd be it That's for Israel. It. I mean their great their great weapon here is Moses' hands, so to speak. and if the hands are gone, then they're weak. So notice in contrast here,
0: where is Moses this time around? Nowhere to be found. I see right. And Israel on its own manages to sort of win God onto their side by mm-hmm. virtue of this promise. Right. Which they don't seem to have been capable of the first time around. It's just if you got Moses, you win. Otherwise, uh, you're, you're sort of stuck. And, and by the way, think about what's happening now. What's the great difference between Israel in the year one of the desert and Israel in year 40 of the desert who just died? Mm-hmm. Aaron just died. The one who held up Moshe's hands. Now, right before that, we have the story of Moshe hitting the rock. And Mm -hmm. when did that happen? Who died right before that story? Mm,
1: That was Miriam.
0: And as a result of Moshe hitting the rock, who's going to die?
1: Right. So now Moses isn't going to make it into the land. So So what's happening now? The people are, they're seeing the mortality of their leaders. And if they're not starting to lose faith in them, they're starting to realize that they're going to have to go figure out how to go at it alone. And going at it alone... It sort of means two things. I mean, it means on the one hand, figuring out how, in a naturalistic way, using your own strength to fight your own battles. But mm-hmm. it also means figuring out how to speak directly to God without, exactly. without a and conduit. And if there was
0: anything that you might say was an Achilles heel of the people the first time around, it might have been an over-reliance upon their leaders. Mm-hmm. You know, they keep on telling Moshe, give us the slav, give us the meat. We're angry at you. There's no food. And what does Moshe keep on saying? Why are you yelling at me? Talk to God about this. But the mm-hmm. people don't seem capable of that at the first time around. There's this over-reliance on, on their leaders and a, a willingness to see their leaders as delivering them almost sometimes to the exclusion of God, which becomes problematic for them, right? And, mm-hmm. and at this time around, their leaders are, are not going to be around. So now what do you do? So here comes Israel and Vayidro Yisrael Nader They come and they, they figure out a way, right? And God listens to them. Let's keep on reading. Immediately after this event, verse 5, the people start complaining about the manna. Now, does that remind you about anything the first time around? In other words, right before Amalek attacks in year one, anything happened with the manna?
1: Ah, well, we we had manna complained just before the attack of Amalek back the first time around.
0: There's no bread. People are complaining. So there's this complaint about no bread, followed by attack of Amalek in year one. And now there's an attack of Malak followed by a complaint about the bread of manna you mm-hmm. start to see the beginnings of a chiasm developing Right. An A, B, B, A kind of pattern. And you see part of the chiasm, without getting into the whole thing, because there's many elements to it, but part of the chiasm is actually water crossings. Because if you think about it, they're about to cross the Jordan River to go into Israel. And of course, what happened the last time around back in year one? What's the great water crossing?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, the, I mean, the great water crossing back in year one was, was leaving Egypt. And that was just right. before the manna, just before Mali yeah,
0: Exactly. So there is leaving Egypt and great water crossing followed by manna followed by a amalek and now mm. there's a amalek manna great water crossing and entering the land
1: so i grab right? it for a minute i'm i'm fascinated i feel like i want to jump ahead but if if you still have more to give me then 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 slow me down but what's in the middle of the chiasm
0: Oh, that's a great question. I don't know, actually. That's a great mystery to me. What the middle of the chiasm is, unless the middle of the middle of the chiasm is really the forty years, right? Something happened in the forty years that seemed to involve leadership, the death of the leaders. The turnaround seems to be that Israel reaches some sort of crisis point with its leaders. The leaders begin to die, and a new reality begins to take place. But in light of all of this, what I would say is, is that At least the theory that I developed back then is that what was about to happen at the time of Bullock, at the time of this week's Parsha, is that history or fate or destiny or the world was about to get a second crack at the bat to be able to relive the Exodus story Mm -hmm. again and to perfect it. There was something wrong with the original Exodus story, right? And what was wrong with the original Exodus story? You, you begin to see what's happening in Balak's time is the opportunity for another Exodus. It's as if Balak is literally Egypt and has a choice as to how they will regard the Israelites. And their choice and how they will regard the Israelites is a mirror image of Pharaoh's choice. Mm -hmm. of how he would Mm -hmm. choose to regard the Israelites. And for here, I would direct you to my book, The Exodus You Almost Passed Over. And in the last third of that book, I made an argument about the exodus that might have been, the exodus that could have been. And the argument that I made was that the exodus was really designed to be an international event. It wasn't designed to be an event that was really the defeat of Egypt, so much as an event that brought Egypt around. And in the best version of the exodus, Egypt comes to know that there is God. Remember that language keeps on saying, mm-hmm. Egypt should know that I was God. What if Pharaoh had stayed with his realization that he has in, after Plague 7 that Hashem vaniva that God is God uh, and God is the righteous one and we've done a terrible thing an injustice in enslaving you. It's awful. Let us escort you to your land. You know, something like that. Having realized the truth. So then Egypt doesn't get destroyed in Instead, there's a a collaboration of Gentile and Israelites together celebrating their father, much as there was in the initial prototype version of this with the burial of Jacob. It didn't happen with the original Exodus, but there's one more chance. The defeat of Og and the defeat of Sichon, which you referenced before, that takes place right before the story of Balak, is that which happens, which like the plagues, is like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. And like you said, like the plagues, that's language from the plagues. The same way that the plagues were designed to teach Pharaoh something about who God is and the might of a master of the universe and the fact that the master of the universe has this chosen nation and wants really the entire world to to unite around that mission of this chosen nation. And that was the design of God's display of of power and majesty in the supernatural events of the X That was happening again with the defeat of these people. Israel was reaching out in camaraderie to the nations of Sichon and Og. They did not take that hand. They were defeated instead. And you basically have a choice which is that Israel will reign supreme. If you oppose them, you'll be destroyed, like Pharaoh, but you don't have to oppose them. You can celebrate with them. And what was supposed to happen now is a new Egypt-like nation, Balak, has the chance to go look at them and say, let's not be afraid of them, let's join them. Remember, Balak doesn't have a horse in the race. Ballock doesn't even have land to be passed through. Ballock isn't a Canaanite. He's not going to be a nation that Israel's is going to. So Ballock can celebrate with them, but Bullock instead chooses to cower in fear, to needlessly oppose Israel. And that becomes the tragedy of the story of Balak and Bilam. This didn't have to happen. There was another opportunity. In the end, the only hope you hear of it is Bilam himself. Instead of an entire nation of Gentiles teaming up with the Jews and celebrating them and bringing them into the land with pageantry, what you instead have is one lone Gentile who despite himself, after trying to curse the Jews, Turns towards them and says Matovu Yaakov and hmm. celebrates them and looks towards the ends of days and and creates what becomes a messianic vision. Everything we know about the messianic vision comes actually from Bilaam's final prophecies, and the reason I think that's true is because what was supposed to happen right now was messianic. The idea of the messianic vision is the combination of Gentile power and Israelite destiny together into a celebration of a common father in heaven. It could have happened then. There was a messianic moment that could have happened. The exodus that should have been. It didn't happen there. But the one Gentile who celebrates looks forward to a time when it will happen. And his prophecy becomes the bellwether of that.
1: You know, it's it's intriguing. The more that I hear this theory, the more that I'm seeing pieces of evidence in Parsha's Balak that really do seem to suggest that Balak's fundamental problem was failure to recognize God, right? It was exactly Paro's problem. For one thing, you don't see any language about God coming at all from Balak. God is all throughout this Parsha. Bilam talks about God all the time. Balak doesn't talk about him once. The whole idea of hiring a man to curse Bene Israel, I mean the whole point of the parsha is that men can't curse one another. Only God has the power to do that. Balaam understands that, right? Mm-hmm. But Balak totally doesn't get that because he's existing in this purely, you know, naturalistic universe. He can't see that. And, you know, even when he talks about what it is that he's fearful of, he doesn't say B'nai Yisrael is on my border, the master of the universe is on their side performing miracles left and right. He says there's a lot of them and they're going to eat up all my food. Yeah, I mean, he-
0: and it's true. And, and the great tragedy of this moment, again, is that Balak, locked in this paradigm, sees God for what he isn't and becomes fearful of a god that... That is conjured up in his imagination, but doesn't Mm -hmm. represent the real God, which Mm -hmm. is the great tragedy. You know, you and I were working together a little better. I had you read... um, our Tishabov course, which we're in the Mm -hmm. middle of preparing and which we'll be releasing soon. And and you podcast listeners, you should watch out for it. It's a wonderful course, uh, I think. And one of the fundamental arguments I made there, you know, I keep on coming back to the Garden of Eden story and seeing new things in it, you know, after writing a book 10 years ago about it, and you, you never fail to see new things that make you want to rewrite the book. But one of the things that I saw recently was this This strange thing that – and one of the arguments I'm going to make in that course is that the deepest deception of the snake is a misidentification of who God is, Mm. is that he gets Adam and Eve to believe in a God that's not there, and the the God that he gets them to believe in is a God of justice – a God who's a judge, but not a God who loves you. It's the Elohim God, but not the Hashem Elohim God. The snake purposely drops that language, which, which the Torah itself identifies God as over and over and over again, but the snake is, no, he's not Hashem Elohim. He's only Elohim. He's only the judgment part of God. He's not the lover part of God, not the father who cares about you. And the argument I made there in that course is that that essentially leads you eventually straight to idolatry, because you know if, if it's a God that you fear, Fear is a terrible emotion, and if the only thing you can muster in your spirituality is a sense of fear, yeah, fear is part of it, or awe or something. I mean, it's scary being around the master of the universe, but that's all he is. There is no allegiance there, and eventually, at some point, you're going to betray God. You're going to subvert him, because even though it sounds crazy to rebel against somebody who's so much stronger than you, but history is littered with rebellions of the weak against the strong, where they just had it. And they're going to rebel. And at some Mm. point, you're going to worship someone else. It, It sounds like here comes Balak with the same problem. He's captive to fear. He chooses to fear when there's nothing to fear it's almost as if he's mistaking awe for fear. It's like, here's this nation that you could be in awe of, right? With a God, the master of the universe, who's in charge of the Andromeda galaxy and the the the, the, whole, the whole entire universe who's with them. And that's definitely awesome, right? But if you entrap yourself and the only thing you can feel is garden variety fear, then, you know, you're going to have to rebel.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, I think you see that here in, in the Parsha as well, that, Back in Egypt, how was it that God taught his lesson? How was it that God introduced himself to the world? And the answer is that he did it through destruction. I mean, it's not not the way he wanted to do it. He was forced into a corner. And he introduced himself to Egypt and to the world via these plagues. And now in Parshas Balak, it's almost like God's saying, Nations, let me introduce myself to you anew once more. I'm not just the God of of destruction. I'm the God who takes curses and turns them into blessing. I want to be the Matovu God.
0: Yeah, that's kind of interesting, isn't it? Um, So I'll I'll finish off with that, with with one tantalizing thought that kind of expands upon your idea, which is that, uh, I won't elaborate, but my feeling is that the very end of the Torah actually is the messianic vision, as it should be, which is a vision which if possible, is a vision devoid of war. It's actually v'zot habracha. If you look carefully, v'zot habracha before the blessings to each of the tribes, there's a different blessing, and it's a blessing to the world. It's an international blessing. It's that blessing where Israel and other nations are supposed to join together in a recreation of the Exodus/Sinai, where Sinai will happen again. Right. But it's not just that God comes from Sinai. He comes from different mountains, too. l'amo, He shines mm-hmm. forth from Seir, which is Esau's mountain. Even as he loves all nations, right, he gathers his holy ones in his hand and all of the nations in Israel are arrayed around these mountains, accepting some sort of messianic Torah together. So that vision Keeps on sort of haunting us. Of this is the way it can be. This is the way it can be. So Beth, thanks so much. I I know we we kind of went all over the place here in a dizzying run through, but it's been a thrill hanging out with you. And one of the fascinating things about this podcast again is it's not rehearsed. I know you you came in with something, and if I had to lay my bets. Neither of us had any idea where this was going to go, but it's uh, it's definitely fascinating. So thanks for hanging out with me here.
1: Yeah, it was fun. Thanks for having me, Rabbi Foreman.
0: Okay. So, folks, looking forward to seeing you all again. Again, just a reminder, you can subscribe to this at your local uh, podcasting subscription place, wherever that will be. And also check out our videos on alephbeta.org. Uh, the the video this year is, is fantastic. Uh, I think it's fantastic, but I'm curious to hear what you guys think about it too. Until next week, folks, have a good job. Us.